right. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Everybody feeling good? Nobody's got anything going on at home, no turmoil in their lives, anything like that? Good. So, no. I it's just the opposite, isn't it? We all have stuff going on in our lives. If you don't, probably just means that you're hiding inside your closet at home and not going out. Because once you engage with the world, you're going to have stuff going on in, in your life. Um, but what a joy to be here, right? Gathered together here, listening to uh, some great worship, fellowship time with the rest of the body here. Um, there's so much going on, and, and I'm just I'm blessed to be able to get up here and teach you guys a message that I think the Lord gave me. Um, before I get into that, two things. Um, there is some good stuff down in there. There's not a lot of it because we're down to the end of our storage unit, but anybody remember when we were in the other building during COVID, we had those little tent shell things in the back of the sanctuary to say, we've got three of those that were given away. And so if you want one of those, be sure and get down there early or they'll be gone. Um, but there's also stuff in there we're not giving away. So don't just go down and start backing up your truck and loading things in there. So... <laughs> so, all right, that, and, then, and then one last thing. Um, for those of you who were here last week, um, I hope you were as blessed by the letter that Gabe wrote to everybody as I was. I mean, every time I reread that, I just, it just touches my heart, and I hope it does yours too. And I hope you guys understand that, and I say this all the time, she's so much nicer than I am, but her heart for you guys, for all of you, that letter just scratches the surface. She, she pours her heart and soul into making sure that everybody feels taken care of, everybody feels loved. That is, is her heart, and that is her, her ministry first and foremost. So I hope you grabbed one. If you didn't, I know that she put some back there in a the basket or something. If you didn't get one of those, please grab one on the way out because it was a cool thing. Um, so, welcome out there online, uh, our congregation in Tanzania, Epaphras out there. Um, everybody, welcome wherever you are, whenever you're listening to us. Um, we've got a message that I just want to get into. We're in chapter 2 now of Ephesians. We've moved into 2. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And, you know, with Gabe teaching last week, it was so evident how no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how seasoned you are, no matter how you think you're doing uh, in life, we all need a bit of encouragement, don't we? Just like, hey, I see what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing. And it's so easy to just let life get away from us. And all of a sudden you're like, Man, I, I haven't even said hi or thank you or anybody to that person in months or, or years sometimes. And even in a congregation our size, it's hard to be sure that we do that, which is why, again, Pastor Gabe does things like that. But just this whole church in Ephesus, Paul letting them know, I am so thankful for you. I see what you're doing. I see the work that you're going into, and I'm so thankful for you. Now, the reason that's important is because today we go into chapter 2, and after Paul just loads all these kudos onto the church in Ephesus, he's like, wait, I know human nature. What they're going to do is go, we got this. We're doing pretty good, right? And they're going to let down. So after 
loading them on with all this, human temptation would be to pat yourselves on the back and Paul's like, wait, 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 wait. It's not because of anything that you're empowered with, right? You know the only reason you can do these things is because you have Christ in you. You have new life in you. And that is a gift from God. And the, the, the congratulations goes out that you're using it, that you're being faithful and you're stepping out in the power the Holy Spirit's giving you and actually doing something for the kingdom rather than to just say, I've got it and I don't need to do anything. So that's the temptation. It's kind of like, like a baby being born. And the first words out of that baby's mouth at some point is, congratulate me for all the work I went through being born. Like, you didn't do it. You were there, yeah, but I think your mom did all the work. It's kind of like that. Without God's grace and mercy, none of us would be capable of any good thing. So Paul starts out this paragraph telling us, all of us, that we're dead in our sins. So if I were to ask you, and out there online, think about this for a second. Paul says, you're dead in your sins. What does that mean to you? What does it mean when Paul says, and you were dead in your offenses and sins? What, I think it means something different to all of us. But what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Clearly, he's talking about spiritual death here because you're here. <coughs> so what does that mean? I think it means something different to everybody. We're going to talk about that. That's kind of the point of this passage. So it's only 10 verses, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Let me read it for you. If you've got your Bible, grab it. If not, just listen along because then we'll just go back and we'll, and we'll tear into the, into the individual verses. <clears throat> So Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, verse 1, and you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In the original Greek manuscript, by the way, this is just a, a Bible nerd note. The first seven verses there are all one sentence. It's all just one, like Paul is just like, Bruh. It's interesting, though. Let's look a little bit closer as to what he's saying. Now, uh, for those of you who hate, like, the occasional Greek lesson, sorry. There's going to be a few of them in here today. I only pull out the Greek translations of things 
when it really makes a difference in our understanding. And I think there's some of this that's really going to illuminate what the Scripture says. So let's look at verse 1. And you were dead in your offenses and sins. Some versions, uh, if you have a KJV, ESV, will say, and he made us alive, or he has quickened you when you were dead in your offenses and sins. Um, That's not in the original manuscript, though. But let's look at two of those words that are key, and I think they'll make it make a little bit more sense. Again, and you were dead in your offenses and sins. The word dead translates in the Greek, probably no surprise, necros, right? That's where we get the root of that word. And it means, number one, not alive, which is obvious. But in context, what it means is not able to respond to life-giving direction. That's what that means in context, So in your offenses and sins, you were just not able to respond to life-giving direction. And then the word offenses or trespasses, depending on your translation, is peripatoma, and it means a slip or a false step, a deviation from the correct path. And it actually doesn't hold any blame there, whether it's intentional or unintentional. It's just a deviation from the path for whatever reason is what that means. And so my paraphrase, the, the PBV, the Pastor Bob version, <laughs> it's not scripture, it's a complete paraphrase, but you have strayed from the correct path and you were unable to receive correction. In other words, you got lost and you didn't put new batteries in your GPS, so you couldn't find your way out. But now, if you think about that, what I said, it could be either deliberate or non-deliberate. How could straying from the path not be deliberate? Because we have somebody who wants us to stay lost. We have somebody who wants to convince us, you don't need to ask for direction. You can figure it out. And this goes to pretty much all phases of our life. I'm talking about being lost, being on the wrong path, being dead in your offenses and sins, we have a Holy Spirit that we can ask for direction. We have other believers next to us, the body of Christ, that we can ask for help and direction. But we have an enemy who wants to say, no, 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 figure it out. Just just go home by yourself, figure it out. Don't show weakness by asking for direction. Don't look dumb that you don't know the answer. That's how we can stay lost. Verse 2, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world. So let me read it in context. And you were dead in your offenses and sins, verse 1, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And there's a lot there. Who's the prince of the power of the air? That's Satan talking about Satan. Here's one, though. Who are the sons of disobedience? Who's that? Because Satan's at work in the sons of disobedience. That word actually translates to one Greek word. Sons of disobedience in English translates as apatheia. It's the root word of apathy in Greek. But the definition is willful unbelief or obstinacy, or those who refuse to be convinced. 
by God's voice. That is a son of disobedience. My paraphrase again. Satan's the spirit working in those without the Holy Spirit. There's a spirit at work in your life. Is it Satan or is it the Holy Spirit? Causing them to refuse to hear the truth. So, verse 3. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. There's another one to talk about. Remember a couple weeks ago when I said Paul was talking to the we also's and the you also's, two different. This time he's saying, no, we all are in the same boat here. Nobody is any different. Children of wrath. Who's Paul talking about when he says children of wrath? That's a subject of some debate sometimes. Sometimes people think it's God's wrath. Does that mean like Ezekiel, Ezekiel 7, 8, now I will shortly pour out my wrath on you and, and expend my anger against you. I'll judge you according to your ways and bring on you all your abominations. Does that mean that in this instance, children of wrath are children sent by God to pour out his anger? If you're a parent, does it feel like that every now and then? That's not what he's talking about. That would mean that God said, I'm going to punish people by sending children into the world. Now, the reason I bring that up, it sounds kind of like, of course it doesn't mean that. But there are people who do believe that. That God poured out his anger. Now, obviously, children don't stay children forever, but they are born of wrath. They are born purposely to cause chaos, to cause trouble, to cause dissension, and ultimately to inflict God's anger on his people. There are, there are scholars who believe that. That is not what it's saying right here. Let me give you a little context here and a couple other scriptures maybe that might make that a little clearer. Excuse me, 1 John 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the, of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother and sister. So there's the children of God practicing righteousness, loving brother and sister, and then there's children of the devil who do not do those things. John eight forty four. you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. So clearly he's not talking about physical children of the devil. He's talking about those who don't live in righteousness. Living in the lusts of the flesh and indulging them. That's our default nature, isn't it? As fleshly human beings, before we are saved, before we receive the Holy Spirit, our natural tendency before we submit ourselves to Christ is to live in the lusts of the flesh. Whatever makes me feel good, whatever makes me happy. Paul just described there the human condition, didn't he? I mean, that's, that's what we see playing out in the world today, and it's not a pleasant picture. 
So if we talk about it a little bit, talk about the natural human condition, natural as opposed to supernatural. Natural meaning without anything extra, without the spirit, without supernatural power, and then obviously supernatural imbued with the Holy Spirit's power. So you have those two things. You have just a human being living, breathing, going through life without any extra influence other than negative influence from Satan, and then the supernatural that comes along. Thanks to God's infinite love and mercy, our story doesn't end with that fleshly desire and living in a lustful way. Ephesians 2.4, this is the most beautiful verse. It's so short. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, I want to stop for a second and just look at that. Look at, but God. I have a screen here. I should have a slide up there that just says, but God. You have that? There it is. I made that myself. <laughs> what does that mean to you? This is from Psalm 73, 26. It just says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And there are hundreds of scriptures that say, but God. What a lovely phrase that is. It's only two words. But what does that mean to you? It can mean so many things. It means, it means that there's hope in any circumstance. There's no circumstance that God can't give you hope in. It means the devil won't have the last word. It means redemption. It means a second chance or a 20th chance or a 200th chance. But God means our story's not over until God says it is. Because of his great love, that's why. It's not anything that we're doing. It's not, well, I'm glad I signed up for that Bible study because now God's on my side. I'm glad I'm here at church. I have a perfect record of being here every Sunday. Those are all good things. But we have what we have, and we are blessed the way that we are blessed because of God's great love for us. Verses 5 and 6, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. And Paul reiterates this a couple times. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. That part in almost every translation is in parentheses right there because Paul actually went back, or whoever his scribe was, went back and added that again as just an extra punctuation. Wants to make sure that we get that. By grace, you have been saved. And the riches of his grace are available to us right now, today. That's what Paul's saying in verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, if you just read that in the ages to come, you're going to think, okay, is he talking about end times? Is he talking about pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or what? What's it's ages to come seems like a here and there, right? Like, like some, some time off in the distance is when God is going to pour out his grace onto us. This is another time when the Greek translation makes a difference because that word, ages to come, 
Translates as one single Greek word, and it's aeon, A-I-O-N. And the definition is from here to eternity. From today to eternity. That means his riches of grace and mercy are available to you today, not just when we get there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved. This is Paul just pouring out his heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. God has chosen you to pour out this gift of extravagant grace. You didn't go to him and say, let me give you my resume and see if I've earned it. None of us could possibly earn it because the price for that gift of extravagant grace is faith in his son Jesus. That's it. So if we look at that, this causes a lot of division, a lot of confusion. Faith in his son Jesus. Hebrews tells us, uh, 11.1, faith is a certainty of things hoped for and a proof of things not seen. So, an unbeliever might argue, if I don't have faith, it's because God chose not to give it to me. Does that make sense? Anybody ever heard that? Ultimately then, it's not my fault. If I don't have faith, it's because God hasn't revealed himself to me and it's not my fault. Or let me give you another possibility. Maybe, and this goes for you out there online, maybe you are among what Paul calls the sons of disobedience. Meaning he has been revealed to you again and again and again, the voice of the Holy Spirit, the voice of teaching, the voice of friends, the voice of of anybody in your life has been revealed to you again and again and again and you stubbornly refuse to accept. Because the cure for that, the cure for that is to renounce and reject Satan and accept and believe in Jesus Christ. Here's the problem though, it doesn't work the other way around. It doesn't work the other way around. You have to reject Satan and accept Christ and then receive grace. It's not a matter of, well, go ahead and give me the grace first. Fill up my bank account. Give me favor. Give me the renewed heart. Give me all these things, and then I'll believe. It actually is the reason why sharing Christ with someone who has not accepted Christ is so difficult. Because without the Holy Spirit, you don't understand the things of the Spirit. You have to accept him first, and then the light comes on. God has set a place for you at his table, and all you need to do is accept the invitation. That's what verse 10 says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We've been talking about that this whole series. You are predestined into adoption. And a place has been set for you at his table in heaven. You have a purpose here on this earth. And the only thing you need to do is just accept it. But the biggest thing, getting in the way of God's plan, 
Anybody know what that is? It's you. The biggest thing getting in the way of God's plan for you is you. We can blame Satan all we want, but ultimately we have the choice. So I want to wrap up this message by going back to verse 3 and looking at it a little bit closer. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. All right, so let's talk about these churchy words, flesh and spiritual death. How many times do you see, you're living in the flesh, you need to get out of your flesh, you need to, we're all fleshly beings. If you don't have a full understanding of what that is, it just sounds churchy. And spiritual death, you're all dead in your sins. Well, no, I'm not, I'm here. What does that mean? It causes a lot of confusion, and I think when you say, okay, living in the flesh, what does that mean? It means I went to a party last night, and I had fun. And spiritual death, well, I'm here. So what's the penalty then? Why should I care? The term living in the flesh is just simply, it's, it's the, a human condition. It's our natural human condition. So focused on yourself, your own passions, your own desires, your own wants, that your mindset, listen to this, is completely independent of God. It doesn't always mean in opposition to God. Has anybody here ever known an unbeliever who does good things? Who's fun to be around? Who's a nice person who maybe is successful in life? It doesn't always mean in opposition to God. It just means independent of God. And when you're independent of God, you are subject to other influences. This is what I taught about weeks ago. We've all got influences. There's no such thing as anybody on this planet who says, I am free of any outside influences. I make all my own decisions. No, you don't. You make decisions based on, your, on who your parents were and how you were raised, experiences you had. Maybe it's the last person you talked to is, is making you make a decision a certain way. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's a demon spirit but we're all subject to influences. We all are. And if we act on those influences independent of God, you're living in your flesh. That's what that means. Who here can remember their life before Christ? I can. Were you miserable every single day? Were you walking around in a sackcloth and ashes and just, oh, I wish somebody would take this yoke for me? I wasn't. I thought I was doing okay. My life wasn't one completely of misery and despair and hopelessness. Some people want to tell you that's the way it is. And then they're like, but my life's not like that. So why should I add something else into my life? We've probably all met unbelievers who are, again, smart, generous, successful, fun to be around. But Paul here is saying that no matter how kind and smart and intelligent you are, apart from Christ, you are spiritually 
dead. So then you might ask, why should I care? Sounds like the more fun of the two parties to be at. Paul says, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's clearly talking about two different kinds of death here, isn't he? There's the physical body death, the physical death, and then there's spiritual death. So let's contrast that with the first birth and the rebirth in Christ. Your first birth made you alive, physically alive. Your body, blood started pumping, air in your lungs, all these things started happening. I had a pastor call it your earth suit, okay? While you're here on earth, that's the suit that you wear. And when it wears out, it's time to go home. Your physical body will one day pass away, but we are promised a renewed body, a resurrected body in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 describes that moment. In a moment, it says, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. Talking about the resurrection, the physical resurrection of your body. So that's happening. But your second birth, when you are born again, that's the moment you become alive in the Spirit. Before the Holy Spirit, your body's alive. You're doing things. You're getting around. You're doing okay. But you are spiritually dead. And when you are born again, you become alive in the Spirit, which then makes you aware of the spiritual world. It's the only way you can be aware of the spiritual world. It's the only way. Spiritual death separates us from God, who is the source of life. Or when you're spiritually dead, it's because you're separated from God. Any living thing separated from the source of life will die. Psalm 36, 9, it's one of my favorite. For the fountain of life is with you. In your light, we see the light. In God's light, we see the light. And it's only with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit in us, that we now see the light. I'm not talking about it's light outside. I'm talking about the light in the world. We, you call it the light bulb going on, where by now, by his light, we can see the ever-increasing acceptance of why can I, I can just only call it depravity in our world today is an example of this. Our culture accepts and even exalts depravity in a way that in my lifetime I never thought I would see. And yet it's becoming ever-increasingly accepted. But... <clears throat> If you're not alive in the Spirit, you will find a way to justify those things, allowing evil to flourish as long as it doesn't infringe on your personal space, as long as it doesn't invade my home, as long as it's not, as long as it doesn't affect my life in a negative way that I can see, I'm just going to let it go. That's where you get statements like, it's none of my business. Um, You do you. Look out for number one. 
I'm just taking what I'm entitled to. Or this one, biblical values are just outdated in this society. When you're alive in the spirit, statements like that aren't acceptable anymore. So we need to understand when you are dead in the spirit, you are spiritually dead. Statements like that are like, okay, as long as it doesn't affect me. When you're alive in the spirit, those things are no longer okay. They can't be okay because you see them. And the irony of man's condition is that we usually don't have any idea we're lost until the day we're saved. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. See, all the way back then, they knew. In your nature, in your flesh, you can't accept the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Another way of saying that is you can't understand life in the Spirit because without the Spirit, you are dead in the Spirit. So until we recognize how truly broken, weak, and spiritually dead we would be, this is the point of Paul's message here, until you realize how weak, how broken, how spiritually dead you would be without the free gift of God's grace, until you reach that point in your head, you cannot possibly appreciate the overwhelming need to stay there in that place of his grace. And that grace, that overwhelming grace, is what brings us from death into life. That's the point of Paul's message, and that's the choice that we all have to make. So if you're out there online, if you're in here, and you're in that place where, gosh, that whole sons of disobedience thing kind of, I don't like the term, but it kind of fits where I am. You have the choice. All you have to do is say, I'm done with that. I'm going to say yes to Jesus because I want to see what it's like when I receive that spirit and now I can see all the things. I thought I knew it all before, but there's no way I can when I'm spiritually dead. I want to be spiritually alive. If that's you, all you have to do is quit running, quit denying, quit stubbornly refusing to believe what's right in front of your face. And if we do that, all of the riches of his grace and mercy are available to us right now. Not someday to come, right now. That's what he does. We have prayer team in the back. If you're in that place where you're like, I want to I wanna make that decision, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to move forward in that. See one of those people in the back. They'll pray for you. There's not a special prayer, a special handshake we're going to teach you. But sometimes we need somebody to say, yeah, stop. Get, I, know you're, I know you're right on the edge of walking through that door. Go ahead and do it. Taste and see that it's good. See that your eyes are opened and experience that grace. Anything else you need prayer for, they're back there and they're available for you too. But that's the one I want to focus on right now. If you're dead in the spirit, the 
problem is, we usually don't even know it. When you become alive, you will know it. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you take you take this message and you do with it what you will. Whether it's softening a heart, whether it's changing a heart, whether it's just simply giving us all something to think about. Gratefulness. Gratefulness that you have given us this gift of infinite grace and mercy. Let us be thankful for that. Let us be thankful that it's right there for us to say yes to. Father, give us that renewed life. Let us walk out and see the light in these things and help us to see those things in this world that we need to stand against. We need to say this depravity is not okay. And I won't put up with it just because it's convenient. It's the path of least resistance to just turn a blind eye to it. So Father, help guide us to see those things. Give us a life-giving way to stand against those things. Let us be a light in the darkness. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take communion right now. We have two stations. We'll have one here and uh, one over here on this side. There we've got juice and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, we have wine up front and bread and gluten-free crackers. If you want juice instead or want to serve yourself, we have that at the tray that's in the back. All you need to do to participate in communion with the body of Christ here is to say that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And whether this is the thousandth time that you've done that, For the first time you've done that, there is life in saying yes to the body of Christ every single time that we do it. So let's do it not just because this is the time when we do it. I urge you all to think about it. Think about what you're doing. Think of the commitment that you're making, what you're saying yes to when you take communion with us. And let's do it with intent because the enemy does everything with intent. He plays the long game. We say yes to Jesus with intentionality and we can stand against anything that he throws at us. Thank you guys.